1: There are so many parallels to be drawn with what happened in in Salem, not least that this was a community, a Puritan community in the late 17th century in America. And, you know, they were not normally like this. I think a lot of the magistrates didn't believe it. Mm. They went along with it for self-preservation. So I feel that when you hear politicians saying trans women are women, intoning whatever mantra, whatever shibboleth it is of the day, you know they don't believe that. But they're looking out for themselves because this movement is so intimidating, so frightening. And of course, the stakes aren't the same. We're not going to get hanged for speaking out. But you might lose your job. People have lost their jobs, their livelihoods, their reputations. They've had everything taken from them, everything trashed.
2: Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show. With me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Andrew Doyle. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank
1: you very much for having
2: me. It's great to have you back. It's been how long? A couple of years, I think. Two years, three yeah, years, something like that. Pre-COVID, pre the collapse of civilization. Yeah, basically, yeah. It was a long a different time. World yeah. When I saw you last, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a lot for us to talk about primarily your new book, which is called The New Puritans, How the Religion of Social Justice Captured the Western World, which is absolutely excellent. Really, really good read. Highly recommend it to all listeners. And let's start at the beginning, I guess, which is to ask you who these New Puritans are. Now, you describe them in the book a few times. My favourite description is when you call them a clergy for a godless age, presiding over a dreamscape of their own making, rewriting our language, history and traditions as they go along. So most people will have a sense of who you're talking about. You're talking about the woke, SJWs, the politically correct, there are different terms for this group of people. But just the outline for us to kick things off, how you understand the new Puritans, why you think they're a problem?
1: Well, the reason why I I sort of um, compare them to a clergy is because they are among the elites, you know the, it it isn't just the case that we used you know, obviously we used to have social justice activists online uh, bleating about all sorts of things, and they were relatively easy to ignore. um but the current situation that we find ourselves in is that the uh, those same sort of activists or those with that mindset, now occupy major roles in our society. They mm. dominate in in uh, you know all of the major institutions, the cultural institutions, educational, political, they're in the civil service, they're in the NHS, they're in the army. You know, uh, I mean, on the day that Putin invaded uh, Ukraine, you had um, the, the Ministry of Defense tweeting about their LGBT coffee morning and how they talked about <laughs> pansexuality, you know, so th- th- it is absolutely everywhere. And of course, that kind of thing sounds frivolous, uh, but actually it's very, very serious um, because some of their their belief system is fundamentally illiberal, yeah. uh, has created a, a more divided society than ever before, uh, actually makes matters worse. Where it purports to make matters better, you know. I mean, they claim to be about uh, unity and equality and and um, and progressivism. They think they're progressives, but they're the opposite. They're yeah. regressives. And so, when I talk about the the, the clergy, I want to. I, I I really want to hammer home this idea that we're not dealing with just some peripheral uh, individuals who are screaming a lot about things that don't matter. Uh, it's very easy to mis to caricature it like that, isn't mm. it? And just say, oh, it's just old people complaining about snowflakes or whatever. And it's not that at all. It's something much, much bigger. It's an ideology that is now at the heart of our culture. And it's going to be really difficult to to get rid of it, I think.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I really want to dig down into this question of the fact that they are not progressives. Yeah. And that's something I think that's really important to you and I to really spell out what we mean by that. because They're not left-wing that, either. They're not left-wing at all. And that re- I, I think both of us find that incredibly frustrating, mm-hmm. this idea that they are. So I want to ask you about that shortly, but let's just talk about a bit more about who these people are and what they're all about. So you have, there is an incredibly powerful prologue to the book in which you describe a falling out with an old friend of yours in which he calls you a fucking Nazi cunt. Excuse my language, but it is the opening line to the book. (laughs) People had better prep themselves for that. And he is, this person is incredibly hostile and angry towards you because you write for particular publications, you put forward particular ideas, and because you were putting forward a critique of the excesses of the woke movement, mm. the SJ, SJW movement, and their regressive politics that they disguise as progressive politics. and He had this incredibly uh, furious response, which I think lots of people will be able to relate to, people yes. who have fallen out with friends or found themselves in the eye of a Twitter storm. And You have a really good phrase to describe what's happened to some of these people. You call it the curdling of rational minds, where you have people who might formerly consider themselves liberal or progressive or open-minded who are now screaming uh, spittle into the faces of people who they consider to be on the wrong side of history, on yeah. the wrong side of politics. How has that intolerance come about? Why do you think people who, the same kind of people who 20 or 30 years ago may have been pretty much open for discussion are now so hysterically intolerant to any disagreement with their political worldview.
1: Yeah, I mean that's really what the book is about. That's mm. really it's a book about intolerance and trying to understand why uh, we've reached a position where uh, people intelligent, normally rational people have become irrational and and bigoted in this way. I mean, you know, I've opened with a, a, a personal anecdote. Um, not because I want to make it all about me, but because I feel that lots and lots of people have experienced similar things. And this was such an extreme example. You know, I'd been out with two friends. We were having drinks. We would, we'd we been drinking for an hour, having a great time. And suddenly he had this outburst and 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 shouted at me. He called me a fucking Nazi cunt over and over again. And I thought he was joking at first. And then <laughs> we dug into it. Um, part of it was that I wrote for Spike. That was, seemed to be something that particularly mm-hmm. upset him, um, th- that I voted for Brexit. Um, various other things, none of which... Remotely equate to fascism. I mean, yeah. it's, it's yeah. so, it's, and I, you know, it's my memory of it is so extreme that I went back because while I was writing about it, I thought maybe I've misremembered this. And I went back and checked an email I wrote to my friend the next day where I talk about what happened that night. I even emailed the, the guy in question and it's exactly accurate. It was mm-hmm. that extreme. And obviously, uh, this is something that had been on his mind for a while. And I, I speak in, I've spoken to so many people who've said they've had similar experiences. People they've known for years suddenly block them. Mm. on social media, block their phone number, won't have anything to do with them because of maybe someone they've associated with, an opinion they've expressed, an opinion, by the way, which typically everyone else has has had, you know, something like the acknowledgement of the biological reality of sex differences. Yeah. Suddenly, if you acknowledge that in public, people have lost friends and family over it. Now, that is not a sane society, is yeah. it, where that can happen, um, where the, the notion of rationality is just out of the window. It's just all about this emotive hysteria. I think it's a hysteria. Yeah. So that's why I started w- with that anecdote in the hope that, uh, because I, kn- I just know so many people have experienced it.
2: Okay. So on the hysteria aspect of it, I think mm. one of the things I really liked about the book is that you divide it into different religious categories. So yeah. the, the way in which this religion of social justice, they, they, they use the term social justice, uh, the way in which it has grown, taken hold, become increasingly influential, Within the establishment, amongst the elites. Um, And hysteria is a key part of it. So you kick off with, uh, after the prologue, you talk about the Salem witch trials, which have become a very famous talking point over the past few years, particularly since Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible in the 1950s, which, as everyone knows, is largely about McCarthyism, but through the prism of the Salem witch trials. and you talk, you compare the frenzy that gripped Salem, where they uh, were determined to destroy these women who were presumed to be evil, presumed to be doing evil things and holding evil thoughts. You compare that with the frenzy of conformism, as you refer yeah. to it, of the contemporary era. You, that's a legitimate comparison, right? In, yeah. I mean, no one has is being burnt at the stake in twenty twenty two, not yet, anyway. Yeah. But yeah. The, the atmosphere is similar in terms of that sense that people uh, transgress the political ideas or say something slightly incorrect or don't use the right word for people of colour or trans people, and you could instantly find yourself on the wrong side of these people.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think there are so many parallels to be drawn with what happened in in Salem, not least that um, this was a community, a Puritan community in the late 17th century in in America, in New England, in um, Massachusetts. And um, you know, they were not normally like this. You know, this isn't something they normally did. They didn't Mm. go around screaming about witches all the time. This was a massive aberration that only lasted a year. So this hysteria rose very quickly and then died down very quickly. And I see a lot of parallels with what's happening to us in our culture today. There's also an optimistic element to this because I think looking at what happened in Salem gives us the key for how we're going to escape this. Mm. So what you'd have, I mean, the main reason why it's, it's similar is firstly, it's it's a reminder of the human susceptibility for groupthink, our tendency to go along with 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 simple narratives if if they're more comprehensible than complicated truths. Um, you have um, and most importantly, I think in Salem, it was the elites that were perpetuating this. So it was the ministers, it was the it was the judges, it was the magistrates who were who were saying, yes, these girls who are screaming that there are witches in every shadow, they're right. Um and the other major comparison which I draw is about in the book is about. The the prosecutions, the reason why 20 people were killed, were executed is because of the lived experience of the girls. So the girl, it was the only evidence they had was what they called spectral evidence. Mm -hmm. That was the only evidence. So they would be in court. Some woman would be dragged in, normally a woman, there were men as well, were dragged in. The girls would point and scream and say that they, they were sending their spirit out to pinch them, choke them, attack them. They were turning into a bird and flying up to the beam and the girls would scream and point. And that was taken as evidence. I mean, if you read Cotton Mather's book about this, "The Wonders of the Invisible World," and he was there, and he said, "Yes, uh, we didn't need any more evidence than that because it was so obviously true." Because we looked at the girls, Um, and in other words, the girls—it was their truth, it was their lived experience—and no other evidence was required. So, I think there's so many parallels now because the accusation of racism, of homophobia, transphobia, etc., is enough. Is taken as the accusation is taken as proof, and that's where we're at. So, I thought there were loads. Loads of comparisons. Um, also, I just think, in, in as a means to help people to understand it, because one of the reasons why I wanted to compare it to a religion is because it makes it comprehensible. We can suddenly understand why these decent people are behaving so badly. I quote Steven Weinberg, who talked about how uh, the physicist who talked about how in a world where where uh, you, you know you, in a world without religion, you might have good people doing good things and bad people doing bad things, but for good people to do bad things, that takes religion mm. and by that could be any ideology, uh, and this is an ideology that makes decent people behave like monsters. And I'm interested to find out why and to explain why. And the other reason that I brought Salem into it—I sort of start and finish the book with Salem—is because, as I say, I think there's a lesson to be learned of how we can escape from this, and it's to do with courage and it's to do with standing up and saying, "No, the emperor has no clothes. Mm. This is not real. The 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 world is not systemically racist. Um, you know, we, we don't live in a country uh, full of fascists, etc." And it takes, in Salem, there was a tipping point. When when sufficient numbers of people said, no, this isn't real, then it just went away. Mm-hmm. And yes, some people got ex- The early people who spoke out were executed. Because <laughs> if you stand up and say, yeah, this is all, this is all bollocks, uh, you're going to be, they'll point the finger at you next. I mean, it happens all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say there are two sexes online, you get bombarded and attacked. In about, hopefully in about five, six years time, that'll be back to the norm. We'll be able to acknowledge that without any risk. But it takes those early sacrifices to to make make the change. And interestingly, in Salem, the more I read about it, the more I realized that I think a lot of the magistrates didn't believe it.
2: Mm.
1: They went along with it for self preservation, which is something that Arthur Miller talked about when he was writing The Crucible. The thing that bothered him the most was that these powerful elites, these powerful people, were just looking out for number one and saying yes, and going along with it. Same in Salem. I mean, there were there was one example where one of the girls. Uh, she said she'd been stabbed by a fragment of a knife. And she pulled out this fragment said that this person's spirit has just stabbed me with this. And someone in the uh, pews said, that was my, that broke off my knife the other day. You saw it, you were there and you picked it up and Mm. I saw you. So straight away, they knew the girl was lying. Instead of acknowledging that, the magistrate said, okay, we'll just move on to the next Mm. stage of the investigation. So there was another time when the girls accused a local dignitary called Willard uh, who was too powerful to accuse. And the magistrates have said, no, you are mistaken. You must mean Constable Willard, who's already in jail. So they were just set basically, you know, going along with it and, and they must have known. Yeah. And, and so I feel that a lot of the people who perpetuate this stuff, when you hear politicians saying trans women are women, intoning whatever mantra, whatever shibboleth it is of the day, you know, they don't believe that. And and but but they're looking out for themselves, yeah. um, because this movement is so intimidating, so frightening, and of course the stakes aren't the same. We're not going to get hanged for speaking out, but you might lose your job. You people have lost their jobs, their livelihoods, their reputations. They've had everything taken from them, everything trashed. So there is an equivalence there, I think. Absolutely, and I was thinking of the exact same comparison.
2: So when someone like Kier Starmer cannot bring himself to say that women don't have penises. It precisely brings to mind those back covering types in earlier witch hunt moments who clearly didn't believe what the girls were saying, but felt that they had to go along with aspects of it in order that they wouldn't have the finger pointed at them next. So there's a lot of that going
1: on as well You can see the fear in his eyes as well. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Absolute dread that he might say the wrong thing and then lose favour with certain people. Um, Okay. So I want to talk about, I'll come on to trans in a moment, because I want to talk to you now about, some of the issues through which this uh, contemporary witch hunting climate is enacted and enforced. And in the book, you go through the various dogmas that are enforced by this new religion of social justice and the blasphemies that uh, they punish and that you are not allowed to express. So the first one I want to ask you about is, the trans issue, yes, which we've just touched upon. And the, the thing that really worked for me when you're drawing a comparison between Salem and what's going on now is when you describe what happened to Dave Chappelle. So Dave Chappelle has been in trouble with the woke or the SJWs for quite a while because yeah. he makes jokes, very funny jokes about gender identity and the myth of the trans woman and he describes himself as a turf and he's taken the side of JK Rowling and all those kinds of things and of course there was a fam- there was famously a protest outside Netflix HQ because yeah. they Netflix was showing his specials and you have this you recount that wonderful incident where a couple of people turned up to support Dave Chappelle i think some one of them had a placard saying we like Dave it was a really yeah. <laughs> brilliant someone else had we like jokes <laughs> yeah we like jokes really great <laughs> counter protest they were countering the people who wanted Dave to be canceled um, and a woman went over to one of the pro-Dave Chappelle people, I'm going to swear again, just to uh, warn listeners, and said to him, repent, motherfucker. And over you have, and over again. Over and over yeah. again, like a real religious instruction. Yeah. And you have this, um, you describe this in your book under the subheading, <laughs> repent, motherfucker. So, And it works really well because, as you say, you say this really captures the combination of rage and religiosity that characterizes the SJW religion. So on the trans thing in particular, let's dig down into that a little bit. Um, Firstly, why do you think that has become such a key flashpoint in this new religious war or culture war, however we want to describe it?
1: Because, um, I mean, one of the ways that I try to explain what this movement is, because it is like a hydra with many heads. It has all these interconnected connected and interdependent strands so you've got re- but it's all around group identity. Yeah. So you know, uh, you know, queer theory and, and critical race theory ostensibly have very little to do with each other, but they are rooted in this fundamental belief that uh, relating to group identity as being the sort of pivot around everything around which everything else revolves. So, um when it comes to the trans debate, what this really comes down to is a debate between those who uh, see biological sex differences, the reality of w- what it means to be male and what it means to be female, as, as something that is incontestable, whereas uh, gender ideologues uh, believe that gender or how one perceives oneself you know uh, is more important than biology and should actually supersede it mm. when it comes to public policy and that's really the, and it's people using different definitions of the same term. you know if you think that a woman is someone. Uh, with you know, XX chromosomes, who has the potential to produce large gametes, um, then that's your definition of woman. That's everyone's definition of woman, really. Yeah. But the ideologues don't see that. They see woman as an identity category. So when we talk about trans women are women, well, that makes sense if you believe that woman is merely an identity category, something that can be worn like a costume. Mm. But it doesn't make sense. It's incoherent. If you if you subscribe to the conventional definition of woman, so how can you have an argument if people are using different definitions of the same words? And when I was writing this book, what really mm-hmm. what really came home to me is this whole culture war is really a battle about language mm-hmm. and who gets to decide what what words mean. Because culture warriors will often redefine words that we've known the definitions of for many years, and they'll deny that they're doing it in the process. There's even activists who have who have become very prominent within dictionary companies. Who actually changed the definitions of words online, like like Merriam Webster, or changed the definition of of racism, as they did, to mean an equation of uh, prejudice plus power, which is not the way it is understood by 99% of people, right? So, whereas the dictionary is meant to record common usage, this is not, this is an attempt at social engineering. We're going to change the definition, gaslight you effectively, and say, no, look, it's always meant that. And you've got to go along with our definition. It's about power, it's about control. So the reason why the trans issue has become so important is because all of these various interconnected strands of the social justice movement at heart are about not presenting a new pseudo reality and expecting people to buy into it. A denial of truth really is at the heart of it. Mm. Is They can say, look, this is a largely peaceful protest, even though behind the report there are burning cars and buildings. And they can say it because mm. if they dominate the language, if they describe something as largely peaceful, then it makes it so in their world. And they all, and you know, I talk in the book about the roots of this being the French post-structuralists of the 1960s. And for them, there was this nexus of power and language. And, and they they believed that our understanding of reality is entirely constructed through the words that we use. And therefore they are investing words with this incredible power. So for all of these activists, whether they are Black Lives Matter activists or trans activists, what, whatever strand they're from, they all share this fundamental belief. This is the wellspring um, that if that words are reality, and that's why you get this idea that words are violence and jokes normalize hate, etc. It's this is where they are all connected. All of these strands connect. So, I think the tra- the trans issue, the gender identity issue, really gets to the heart of this because you have a very small minority of people, the elites again, telling us to deny the reality before our eyes, mm. and if you do that then you have control of people. I mean, everyone's known this. It's in 1984. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a hub of 94. It's why he ends up saying two plus two equals five, because then the party control him. You know, we've known this for a long time. It's not a new insight. But now what's happening is the, the, uh, the activists are telling us what we can say. And if we don't say what we know not to be true, they'll punish us. Yeah, That's what's scary about it. Yeah.
0: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop.
2: You talk in the book about, uh, in relation to the trans stuff, also the additional problem, which you've touched on just there, compelled speech and the compulsion to believe a particular thing. And if we go back to the Enlightenment, you quote Spinoza in the book saying that the unfreedom is being made to believe what someone tells you to believe. And John Locke made the same point that you know if you are forced to believe something by fire or sword, as Locke said, then you're not a free person. And you see a similar dynamic in relation to the control of language around issues to do with gender and issues to do Mm. with sex. And I think that is why it's such an important issue for those of us who consider ourselves to be genuinely progressive and genuinely interested in freedom and open debate to really pick apart. A key aspect of the trans issue, of course, is JK Rowling, who you write about in the book too, and you give a very good description of how she is she, uh, her experience provides an insight into how the contemporary witch hunt works. Yes, And what I think is important about the J.K. Rowling thing, firstly, I think she's just behaved incredibly heroically. And I say that as someone who would probably disagree with her on 90% I'm sure. of things, <laughs> chiefly Brexit. Um, but she is someone who has stuck by her guns, even in the face of a, 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 an anti-witch onslaught, and who refuses to back down. But there are two aspects of the rolling thing, aren't there, that are important. The first is the language stuff. So she refuses to use the language one is supposed to use. And I remember when the Scottish police said that they would record rapes as having been committed by women if the man who committed the rape identifies as a woman. Yes. And she did a great tweet where she said, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength, the penist individual who raped you is a woman, which really captured the, the, the Orwellian nature of, of that language control. And then the second thing that is important about rolling is it demonstrates what you're talking about in relation to the atmosphere of Salem, which yeah. is this absolute intolerance, often aimed more vociferously at women than at men, particularly on this issue. Of anyone who dissents from the new religion. So the rolling stuff is actually really important to this. Oh yeah. It?
1: I think she's an absolute hero. I mean, you know, it's all very well saying, well, look, she's so rich and powerful, yeah. and therefore, you know, a lot of the people say, you know, she's not being cancelled. She's just, she, people are just holding her to account for her abominable views. Well, well, for one thing, she doesn't have abominable views, right? Um, but but also, you know, just because someone's a millionaire and has a lot of power doesn't mean that constant death threats and rape threats are in any way excusable. Mm. You know, people telling, saying that all of this is fine because she's being held to account. I think that's you're legitimising bullying. I mean, you really need to check yourself on that. That's incredible, mm. uh, incredible blind spot. But the other thing about role, the Rolling case is she is an excellent example of the hysteria that I'm continually talking about in the book. It's similar to that, the prologue where the, my friend, ex friend starts screaming at me that I'm a Nazi, knowing that I'm not, knowing that I'm a vocal opponent of racism, knowing that I'm a liberal minded person, et cetera, still saying it. The Rowling case, I mean, JK Rowling has never said anything <laughs> transphobic, ever. That's why when you get into debates with these people and ask them to quote her, they only throw up. Bad faith articles from the Pink News yeah. that are calling her transphobic, or some out of context line, or something, or some guilt by association. Oh, she liked this tweet, and this the person she liked the tweet of said this at some other point. Yeah. Just really basic logical fallacies. Um, so, how is it? And this is again the question I'm trying to get at in the book. How is it we've reached a point where a woman who is uh, so philanthropic that she's, she, she's no longer a billionaire because she gave so much money to good causes. Mm. A woman who has always been very principled and, and has, clearly has liberal values, clear, explicitly says that she supports trans people, trans rights, etc., has never said anything transphobic or hateful or bigoted, is nonetheless widely perceived to be a far-right reactionary evil Nazi. Yeah. And I don't use those terms lightly. Those are the words that I used about her. I mean, maybe by some of the more extreme people, but even in the mainstream commentariat, you'll hear her casually described as a transphobe or ha- has had said transphobic things, which is not true. That is factually wrong. So what I'm trying to answer in this book is how we've reached this point where people have bought into this hy- hysteria to such an extent that someone can be monstered in this way. She's been turned into this folk devil. But if anyone with a rational mind for, t- spent five minutes just looking at the things she's actually said they would have to concede that it, it was all not true, that they would have been fighting with ghosts this whole time. And it's also about, uh, the other thing that concerns me is people's reluctance to self-reflect. You know, if, mm. if someone says to me, you've made this point, but it is based on a factual error, the first thing I'll do is confirm that. I'll check it. And if it's correct, I'll probably thank that person and because it means I won't make that mistake again because I am interested in the truth. And I'm also aware that I can be wrong. Often am, must be, we all are. But da- that lack of humility that these activists have, that they cannot concede they could ever be wrong about anything. And you get the sense that even if, even if they recognise the incontrovertible evidence which disproved what they were saying, they wouldn't let go of it. Because for them, the truth is, is not really, it's expendable. What matters is ultimately their ideological goal. Uh, I mean, that's scary because I think it's a kind of intellectual death. I think these people are allowing themselves to, to, to wither and die. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in relation
2: to the issue that she is some kind of fascist for for holding perfectly reasonable views that most people would share on the issues of sex and gender. It brings to mind a a Babylon Bee headline, which was about J.K. Rowling, and it said something like, dangerous far-right fascist says men are not women, which actually sums up the psychotic nature
1: of some of this stuff. Some people will think we're we're exaggerating here because some people might not be on Twitter or that kind of thing. But you know, there are people like Judith Butler, an academic, very reputable academic, who said in The Guardian that, that uh, gender critical feminism is a strain of fascism? Yeah. You know, um, we've had various people do hit pieces on gender critical feminists, casually calling them fascist, calling them far right. The gender critical feminists, by the way, almost to a person are, are socialist or, or at least yeah. very much left leaning. Mm. So it's so far off the mark. Um, and yet they keep saying it. And the word fascism has to mean something, mm. right? It has to be uh, that, that authoritarian movement from that specific time. In the 20th century, which believed in uh, national, uh, racial superiority, which believed in the oppression of uh, dissenters by military, militaristic force, which believed in that—that's th- th- what it means. But to, to to call anyone who believes in the differences between men and women a fascist—I mean, it's sort of also—is a terrible insult to the people who suffered under fascism. Yeah, yeah, and I'm old enough to remember when it was the
2: alt-right who referred to feminists as feminazis. Yeah. and now that's been done by the supposedly woke left. It's They've adopted that language of referring to certain feminists as
1: fascists. Isn't that funny? Because do you remember the um there was a big thing recently about a guy getting arrested because he posted an image of the progress yeah. pride flag rearranged into a swastika yeah. and he was posted he was arrested for posting hateful content or content that caused anxiety. But the people who complained about it, the activists who were angry, they would call people Nazis at the drop mm-hmm. of a hat. Mm-hmm. They will always invoke the Third Reich. That's their thing. Yeah. Maybe they were just jealous because that's their shtick. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Before we move
2: on from the trans thing to, to other issues. The other aspect of this that I think is very important is, I mean, I guess that I wanted to ask you a question about how you strike the balance between angry, on, very online SJWs pushing their argument yeah. and the fact that the establishment is basically opening the door to them and saying, right. yes, come in, come into our institutions, tell us what gender you are and how we should speak. Because I've always struggled to strike that balance correctly, because on the one hand, there clearly has been some kind of march through the institutions. You have Stonewall basically in every institution now, or it's thankfully being kicked out of some of them, but it was in there putting forward certain arguments. But I've always thought that the response of the institutions themselves is in some ways even more important, because if they weren't so cowardly and discombobulated and open to being swayed in a particular direction... Stonewall would just be stuck outside on the street, knocking on the door. So in relation, the the reason I think this is important in in relation to the Rowling question uh, and the trans question more broadly is that what I find most shocking about the JK Rowling story is not so much the crazy anime Twitter gender narcissists who call her the C word and the B word and threaten to bomb her house. I mean, they are a lost cause. They are deranged and, um, They should just be ignored ideally. Yeah. The more shocking thing is the fact that there are still lots of people who have not spoken out. Uh, uh, Even Boris Johnson has not really said anything about arguably the most important cultural figure in modern British times in terms of the Harry Potter phenomenon. Well, nor has Uh, the Society of Authors. The Society of Authors, that's the most (laughs) recent example. Lots of, you know, female columnists who will very often. Make a play of uh, defending women, yeah. have said nothing about J.K. Rowling, and it's, it, their silence is becoming increasingly loud. So, how do you see the key? So, this goes beyond this particular question. How do you sh- strike that balance between these angry mobs of woke SJW types who have very eccentric views that the majority of the population would not share? Yeah. Is the, the current dominance of this religion their fault? Or is it the fault of the people in power who just haven't got the wherewithal
1: to say, no, piss off, we're not going to talk to you? Yeah, it's like Salem. If the magistrates had said, no, the girls are lying, it would all have ended overnight. That is how it it ended, by the way. In the end, they wrote to these various key uh, clergymen in the country to say, by the way, is spectral evidence admissible in court? <laughs> and they said, by no means. Yeah. And it was dead overnight because that—that that was it. So yes, I absolutely <laughs> don't. I'm not interested in the anime activists on Twitter yeah. and those crazy people online. I just block them. I'm not. You can't engage in a rational conversation with them, so that it's it's useless trying. What bothers me is the is the people in power. Mm. Those those are the ones that are uh, uh, you know need to take some responsibility for this. I don't I don't critique too harshly the people who are silent on the rolling issue. Insofar as I get why it's. Fucking scary, you know, mm-hmm. that you, you put yourself in the firing line for even intimating that you might support where she's coming from, you know. So I understand, and in that sense, you could blame the activists and say, well, they've created a culture of fear, yeah. which is true. They have. I mean, if you look at those photographs of the activists that challenged Kathleen stock and they were setting off flares and stuff, and they were dressed, they were dressed like IRA members with these black masks and you know, it's it's intimidating stuff. But ultimately it's about who capitulates. And when people in power capitulate to this, that's the issue. And then the broader question is, and then Stonewall. Stonewall has a huge amount of responsibility to bear Mm. in this. Stonewall has been completely captured now by gender ideology. And this was the chief, the the most prominent gay rights group in the country. And now its CEO is comparing lesbians who don't want to have sex with men to sexual racists. Mm -hmm. Using the actual phrase. I mean, this is what homophobes used to say back in the 70s and 80s. You know, you just need a good dick. You just Mm. like if you're a lesbian, you just need a Mm. man. Ugly homophobia. And it's coming from the mouth of the head of Stonewall. You know, this this is not trivial. It's actually very, very serious. And and that and the problem is they're dining out on their old reputation, aren't they? So that might be why so many institutions have fallen for it. You know, they think they basically let in a homophobic hate group. (laughs) You know, if you want to if you want to use their language, the (laughs) activist language, um, then that might be hyperbolic. But you know what I mean. Because because actually. Look, I don't think Nancy Kelly is a homophobe. I don't think people at Stonewall are homophobic, but I think they have been so curdled, I use that word again, curdled and become drawn into this hysteria that they are now able to utter explicitly anti-gay sentiments and think that they are being progressive. That's really frightening to me. One of the most frightening things about all of this stuff is that so many of the most vicious uh, antagonists in the culture war are good people. That's That's why, as I say, I've drawn on this comparison with religion, that's the only way I can make sense of it. It's the only way, because I bet the people in the Inquisition who burned people at the yeah. stake, who tied them to the rack, thought they were doing good, um, but they weren't. Yeah, no, they, <laughs> they definitely were not. No, I think
2: that's true about the unwitting woke homophobia that has come out as, uh, as a consequence of the the trans capture of these various institutions. Yeah. I think in relation to Stonewall, what I find just staggering. I mean, I do worry about the impact of all of this stuff on younger people in particular. There are unquestionably young gay men and young lesbians who either are being put on the trans conveyor belt. So they're having their confusions corrected through medication. Whoever thought we'd be medicalizing lesbians in the 21st century and gay boys in the 21st century. Um, or they are consumed by guilt that they are bigots because they only want to have sex with people of the same sex rather than people of a particular gender identity.
1: It's just astonishing. Well, also because this is, you know, all of this stuff, the the stuff that happened at the Tavistock Clinic, uh, the fact that the majority of those who are affected by this and and fast-tracked onto puberty blockers are just gay kids. Let's face it, they're just same-sex attracted. But by um, denuding the phrase same-sex of any meaning, you know, pretending that homosexuality means same gender attractive, mm-hmm. which is what Stonewall now say on their website um, you're, you're putting gay people at risk hugely, particularly young gay people uh, and that's why so many gay people are now anti stonewall mm-hmm. and people don't understand that and it is quite difficult to get your head around, isn't it because it does, mm-hmm. it, like, it feels weird you, you're in a situation where progressives are supporting uh, effectively conversion therapy, mm-hmm. and it's all, it's all sort of rooted in heteronormativity. if you want to use the language of activists well you know, if you, if you think a boy who is effeminate who likes wearing pink and yeah. likes playing with dolls must be fixed <laughs> and heterosexualized like they do in Iran, right? And, and that you, you are subscribing massively to a heteronormative me. I mean, so many of the people, people who proclaim themselves to be non-binary are, are doing so because they have a deeply conservative view of gender. Yeah. They think that, you know, in order to be male, you have to be this and female, you have to be this. And I don't fit into either of these categories, so therefore I'm non-binary. Well, no one fits entirely into those two categories, right? This is reactionary stuff and that is something we have to if we want to defeat this we have to really win the argument about how none of this is progressive yeah i don't know how we do that because they've they've convinced so many people
2: yeah well that that is an incredibly important thread in your book which is that what is presented to us as progressive politics these days is very often the opposite and i wanted to ask you mm-hmm. a little bit about that so it's pretty clear that the progressive idea of gay rights has completely lost its way under the boot of this new religion so that you know what was the progressive view in my view was very clearly that it, people who are same-sex attracted should not suffer any discrimination any persecution any fault at all in society and should be able to live as freely as everyone else that is the progressive view and of course that's been completely garbled by the replacement of sex by ideas of gender yeah. and the notion that a lesbian who doesn't sleep with a woman who has a penis, which we used to call a man, is a bigger. So that's been completely messed up. And there's another issue on which the old progressive view has become something much more uh, dangerous and much more dark, which is in relation to anti-racism. So yeah. you talk in the book about how anti-racism has changed. And it used to be fairly straightforward. It used to be, if you were an anti-racist, you didn't judge people according to their race. Right. You took them as an individual are you a good person? Are you a bad person? Are you interesting? Are you not interesting? That was how you did it. You didn't think for a minute about their skin colour or their cultural heritage or where they came from. Yeah, That was treated as the progressive liberal view for the, at least for the late 20th century, yeah. right up till fairly recently. And now that has completely changed too, hasn't it? In terms of the the demand that is now made of us by these new woke religionists is in fact that we must think about another person's race and we must engage with them on the basis of that race this
1: is this is the key problem with the with the language question is that you know even when i announced the book and of course the subtitle is how the religion of social justice captured the western world i had lots of angry tweets about how what's wrong with social justice social justice is obviously a good thing why are you yeah. against that and of course it's very clever they co-opt these progressive sounding terms uh in order to position themselves on the right side of history i mean i had tweets about how they're going to burn my book and you know <laughs> in the name of progressivism right <laughs> a, i mean lots of those tweets it was bizarre um so yes it's phrases like social justice i mean they do this all the time though so we even the phrase conversion therapy so now mm. you have plenty of labor mp's talking about how they want to ban trans conversion therapy what they mean by that if you dig down what is called trans conversion therapy is simply specialists in uh, in in pediatric gender care talking to kids who are suffering from gender dysphoria to work out whether maybe this is to do with homo- internalized homophobia, maybe this is to do with autism, abuse, other kind of factors. There might be some other factor rather than they just have this innate gendered soul mm. that doesn't match their biological sex, right? So, and just talking that through would save a lot of gay kids mm. from self mutilation ultimately, which is what has happened. But that is now called conversion therapy. It's the opposite, though. Because to simply affirm to a young person who is struggling with their gender identity that yes, you are in the wrong body, therefore let's put you on these drugs, that's the real conversion therapy. So they've got to a point where they've described something as conversion therapy when it's actually the exact opposite. Social justice, they use that phrase because it makes them sound like they're doing something progressive, but everything they do works against the idea of justice. Anti-racism, like you said, used to be a phrase, we we would all describe ourselves as Mm anti-racist because we're all opposed to racism, but it doesn't mean that anymore. Ibram X. Kendi wrote a book called um, "How to Be an, an How to Be an Anti-Racist." I mm, think it's yeah. called. Um, I have read it. I just forgot the title. Um, and <laughs> he, uh, in that book, he talks about how the dichotomy of racist and not racist isn't real, uh, and that how being not racist is another form of racism in mm-hmm. a way because you're not being proactively anti-racist, right? So, what they mean by anti-racism is the pre- ex- accepting the presupposition that all human interaction is undergirded by racism. And every, so in other words, racism is everywhere, whether you like it or not, and that all white people are complicit whether they like it or not. Well, I reject that proposition. Uh, and that makes me racist, according to Ibram X. Kendi. Yeah. You even had Alana Lenton, another um, uh, sort of race hustler who, who wrote about how the phrase not racist is a form of discursive racism. So we are in this weird <laughs> situation where the, the actual truth is to be an anti-racist by their definition is to promote, to promote a form of racism. Yeah. So, in order to be against racism, in order to be an anti-racist in the way that we used to understand it, you have to be against anti-racism. How confusing is it? This is a quagmire. It's a linguistic mess. So, of course, people are confused. They're they're completely baffled. All of these phrases that are completely misused. So, part of my attempt in the book to make it accessible is that I, I go through each of these phrases and talk about what they purport to mean and what they actually mean. And and you know, in order to have the argument, you first have to understand the social justice language. Yeah. You have to learn their lexicon. And what they will do is problematize any terms that are then used effectively to describe them. We had this with woke. I mean, I go in the book through the evolution of the word woke in the book. Yeah. About five years ago, they were all proudly declaring themselves to be woke. All of them. Jack Dorsey wore a Stay Woke t-shirt on, on stage. Uh, Guardian columnists were writing articles about how they were woke. And then people started using that word to describe them, people like me and you. Because that was their word, right? Yeah. So it was almost a courtesy, right? Yeah. Uh, and then they said, no, woke is clearly a snarl word invented by the right. <laughs> We've never used it to describe ourselves, even though if you just Google it, you can see that they did. But again, that's that gaslighting thing, just denying the observable reality. So now when people say the word woke, you think of tabloid columnists going on about woke snowflakes and it's just a, an insult, it's just a pejorative. I, I don't use it in that way. I use it as a descriptive because that was the word they used themselves, but they've, they've forgotten that. Mm. Um, and it's that thing of, unless you can name your enemy, you can't really mm. defeat them. And, and same with social justice. What do you call these people? Well, I use the phrase critical social justice because that's a nod towards a the critical theory upon which a lot of their views are based. But who understands that? Can you call them leftist identitarians? It's probably accurate, except that they're not really left-wing. Yeah. The reason why I've called the book The New Puritans is, is it, it's because my, it's my attempt to find an accessible shorthand for this enemy that will not be named. Mm. Um, and at least it's comprehensible, right? It might not be perfect, but nothing is. You know, we, we, and of course, the major objection I've had is that, well, the Puritans of old, you, you're slagging off Puritans. yeah And I'm not, of course, because the, the, the key thing about the Puritans of New England say is that they had a, an, an innate understanding of their unworthiness before God, yeah. their own fallibility. <laughs> they were constantly doubting themselves. They didn't know if they were the elect or the damned. They were full of self-doubt. It has never crossed Owen Jones's mind that he's wrong. <laughs> And like, none of these activists think that it never, the, the sh- certainty with which they express themselves, I find chilling. Yeah. That, 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 that you know, my default is, assumption is that I must be wrong about a lot of stuff. Yeah. A- and that, that I think is a healthy assumption to hold because it's true. Yeah. And they don't have that. They don't have that capacity. No, not at all. And humility is a very good value when you're
2: entering into the public sphere, into public discussion, yeah. and they don't have it at all. No, I agree on the, on the Puritans issue. I think it, it, in your book, you outline it incredibly well in terms of why you use that phrase to describe these people and drawing those comparisons between puritanical excesses in the past and what these people are doing today. I think works very
1: well. well also, because everyone knows the word Puritan has been a colloquial yeah. way to describe people of a prohibitionist and precisionist and priggish temp- temperament for a yeah. long time. It doesn't mean that you're talking about the Puritans of old, and I specifically call these people the New Puritans. Yeah, that's different.
2: Yeah, and it doesn't mean that the Puritans of old didn't do good things, particularly in England during the Civil War, sure. fighting for religious freedom or helping Cromwell to dispatch of undemocratic <laughs> forces in the country. Yeah, no, that's that's described very well. But w- w- one thing I wanted to ask you in relation to the way in which these people misname themselves, because yeah. I think that is so important and you've just touched on it there in relation to what we have today are gay rights organizations that are actively against gay rights yeah. i mean that's the end result of what that's stonewall it, in is in doing they are a, a supposedly gay rights organization which harm directly harm the interests of same
1: sex attracted a- and, people and and uh, you know black rights yeah. activists to actually make our society more racially yeah, divided exactly so
2: you've got uh, gay rights organizations that are not promoting gay rights the opposite You've got politicians, as you say, saying we're against conversion therapy while promoting conversion therapy yeah. against young lesbians and, and gay boys. And I was going to say you have um anti-racism, which actually brings about a new form of racism, right. which is this racial myopia, this racial obsession, this even forms of segregationism in terms of if you look at on some American campuses, they now are creating black-only spaces because black people apparently can't really associate with
1: White people,
2: we have the idea...
1: We had it in London. The American school in London literally segregated children by skin colour for after-school activities. This actually
2: happened. It's really bizarre. And uh, the whole idea of cultural appropriation is that you should stick to your own racial culture. Don't mix, don't don't mingle. So that misnaming of themselves, I think, is incredibly important uh, because I think that's probably one of the ways in for those of us who do support gay rights, who do support anti-racism who do want a genuinely equal society rather than a society built on equity. And that's another thing you draw out in the book, the difference between those two words and how equity uh, has come to replace the old idea of equality. But on the race question, I think that's arguably, that's one of the most important spheres in which to dig down into this. Because we do have a situation, I think, where we are in plain sight reversing the gains of the Martin Luther King era and. a And the anti racist movements in the UK of the 70s and the 80s. We're reversing those progressive gains and Mm. replacing them with critical race theory in universities, increasingly in schools, in which people are being re
1: educated to think racially. That's really strikes me as quite a lethal. It's going to be hard as well, isn't it? Because, you know, we're in a situation where a lot of decent people are advancing causes that are actually against their interests Mm. and they don't know it. And they don't know it because they've been uh, blindsided by the language. Um, and you know, critical race theorists and the people who promote critical race theory will always say, well, you don't understand it, uh, you know, this, it's too complicated for you. So just accept our, our conclusions. Yeah. And th- this is their, their trick. And they befuddle the layman with jargon and all the rest of it. Well, I've read a lot of their books and I've, I've gone into it and it's not actually that complicated mm-hmm. at all. And so what I try and do in the book is I try and summarize the key, the core tenets of critical race theory in an accessible way. Because I think people, it is readily digestible. You know, they can dress it up all they like, as Judith Butler does, you know, in, in, in incredible obfuscation. But when you get down to it, that's an extension of their strategy. That's always been their trick. And uh, I mean, Orwell used to bang on about this in his essays. He hated it. The fact that the intelligentsia would 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 use these either cliches or, or sound bites or phrases that could not be penetrated because they had very little to say. And that's where we're at now. And so people need to not be afraid of the jargon. Uh and actually it's all there. I mean, even if you read a book like uh Critical Race Theory and Introduction, which is by Delgado, um I, I, Richard Delgado, um, who is a critical race theorist, that's designed, I think it's aimed at teenagers, even it's designed at being sort of accessible. Just you read their own words, right? And you'll you'll get it. I'm not talking about the 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 academics online who who behave like truculent 12-year-olds. I'm talking about just read the books and and uh, you'll get a sense of it. And once you've understood what this is, you can see that the end point of critical race theory is, is racial segregation. Mm. And that's terrifying. And so I think the way out of this will be persuading those people who are, as you say, not the extremists, not the activists online, but those people who are currently supporting these movements and yet have only an, have an insecure grasp of what the implications are. That's actually not hard in a way. if If you can just the trouble is because activists have so successfully painted people like you and I as as far right, evil, beyond the pale, don't talk to them, don't listen to them. It yeah. means that that is a challenge be- because someone like that, are they going to read my book or are they going to listen to some Guardian columnist online who says that I'm evil and if you read the book, you're part of the problem? What, yeah. What's going to happen there? Yeah, um, I don't know. So it is tough. I mean, this is, you know, keep writing this stuff in the hope that it makes a difference. I don't know if it will. <laughs> um- I think it will, at least in the long term. I think
2: people, (laughs) I'm a bit of an optimist, but people have got to come to their senses at some point. Yeah. You would think. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked Supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike Supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. I wanted to ask you in relation to what you've just said, I wanted to ask you about what it means to be left-wing because you and I would consider ourselves left-wing and people, some haters listening (laughs) to this will be chortling into their cappuccino. Well, they won't be listening to it. They won't be listening, but they might hear a tiny clip, one <laughs> yeah. tiny 30-second clip. But th- I wanted to ask you about whether, are, are we just pissing in the wind? Because uh, w- what I think comes across really well in your book, and it really chimed with what I've been thinking and, and, and talking about for a long time, which is that very often those of us who take a stand against the SJW religion or wokeness or, or uh, the enemy that will not be named, yeah. people uh, will say, oh, you're just old right-wing blokes yeah. who don't like progress want to go back to the old era of black people knew their place and women knew their place for me a- and for you it's the in- complete opposite of that and yeah. and the thing that concerns us i think about this new religion that you outline so well in the book is precisely that it is um unwinding all those wonderful leaps forward yeah. particularly of the 1960s and also of the 1970s in relation to women's rights gay people's rights uh, racial equality and everything else and it's very palpable and measurable that those things are being undermined by this new religion. So th- that you do say in the book that you think this new religion is actually has more in common with the right than with the left. It, yeah. Firstly in the sense that it seems very attractive to the middle classes. It's it is quite divisive. It has some of those characteristics of what we would have traditionally seen as a more right-wing political view. I completely agree, but I wanted to ask you, is this a waste of time. Should we think of another way to describe ourselves? Should we think of another way in which to push our argument that what we're calling for and yeah. what we're defending is something a bit more progressive? How, what are the words we should use for ourselves, as well as thinking about the words they use for it's, themselves?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I, I kind of think, has the culture war killed off left and right? You know, I mean, mm. it, it only dates back to the French Revolution anyway, so maybe we can dispense <laughs> with on. it. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, it, is it now right wing to believe in progressive liberal values is it now right wing to believe in um you know e- equality and etc i d- maybe it is i don't I, I don't know i mean i don't get to define those terms but i kind of feel like neither should these activists get to define those terms yeah. you know there's a huge body of literature a tradition of left wing writing and all the great left wing thinkers of the past would be completely dead against uh the these movements so um, i mean even foucault would be as yeah. it happens yeah. you know he's you know he's the deity of their movement but he would completely uh, reject everything they're doing. He uh, would see it as a power grab. But but left and right do. I mean, I, I I do. I've talked about in this this in the book because, as you say, just there, it's it's predominantly middle class people who are pushing this stuff. It's those who don't have to worry about the uh, the concerns of economic inequality. It's those who have never been poor. And I sort of think that I'm going to hold fast to this. In order to be left wing, I think you have to care about redressing economic inequality. Mm-hmm. I think you have to. I think at the heart of what you believe. But since the, the religion of group identity has overtaken class and substituted class, what they would call the, 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 uh, the cultural turn of Marxist thought, and that's why we call it, I suppose, neo-Marxism is probably the best way to describe it, um, as opposed to cultural Marxism, which has that anti-Semitic baggage. You know, I think we have to hold fast to that's what being left-wing means. But it, I also am wary of this discussion because I don't think there's anything wrong with being right-wing yeah. either. Yeah, I, I just don't think I am. Yeah. Um, and. <laughs> I think everyone needs to be able to talk to each other without mischaracterizing each other. So many of the battles that seem to go on are people who are fighting with, they, they, they concoct a monster in their head and they fight that rather than listening to what the person is actually saying. But I think, yes, one of the major things we could do to get us out of this is to undermine these people's pretensions to be left-wing because that you, then they're absolutely not. So much of what they do attacks the working class. Yeah. So, so much of their, you know, even the notion of white privilege. And when you say that... Uh, all white people have privilege, even if they're homeless, even if they're yeah. living on a council estate and they've got no money. I mean, it, it, it not just generates resentment, it has tangible effects. There have been studies that have revealed this. I mentioned it in the book, but I can't remember the specific study, but it talks about how it has muddied policy thinking yeah, because all of a sudden there's no need to sympathize with working class kids on the poverty line if they're white. That's really dangerous. Yeah. So yeah, it, I, I think it is incoherent for these people to call themselves left-wing and we should remind them of that and they won't like that. Yeah. Because they don't read. So they don't know what being left wing means. (laughs) No, absolutely. Well, they read books by Robin DiAngelo and that's that's about it. that's
2: about it. Um, No, I think, and in relation to Marxism, the line I always wheel out with these kinds of pseudo leftists is, is Trotsky's famous line, which is the role of the revolutionary is to increase the power of man over nature and abolish the power of man over man. And That's the polar opposite of everything that they stand for. So they want to decrease the power of man over nature and make us all live in a hair hair shirt, kind of shrunken human footprint existence. And they want to increase the power of man over man in terms of cancel culture, authoritarianism, controlling how we think. It's funny how they're
1: obsessed with power structure and they don't see that they themselves are perpetuating power grabs all the time. Everything they do is about control. Absolutely.
2: Um, Okay, I wanted to ask you, briefly about the class question, Mm. because there is a part in your book, you talk about intersectionality, which is a word I've never really understood. I don't (laughs) think it's meant to be. It's not meant to be understood, (laughs) but you do outline how you understand it. And in that part of the book, you do talk about how it's very often about the intersection of various different identities and race and gender and sex and so on class is often left out. Or even worse, in my view, if class is included in intersectional politics, it's just one of the intersections. It's not the dominant force in society. It's not the thing that often determines your life chances, whether you grow up poor or rich. It's just one of the tiny intersections with all the other things. So they demean class in a way that is actually even more successful than someone like Thatcher would have done it in terms of they reduce it to this tiny little. Exactly, uh, uh, intersection in, in you know the various different things that go on in society. But the thing that I've been thinking, and you just made me think this now as well in what in terms of what you said. One of the things I used to say about the woke left and the SJW religion is that they present themselves as left, but they ignore class politics. And I'm I'm now wondering if that's not right because aren't they pursuing their own class interests in many ways? So as you've just outlined, they are completely dismissive of the needs of working class sections of society who they often look upon as gammon, white, if you're white, that's a problem in itself. You're an ignorant, unhealthy, fat Brexit voting pleb. I mean, all those prejudices are often wheeled out. But through this... Religion, they are arguably fortifying their own class interests in terms of their dominance in the intellectual sphere, sure. uh, in the political sphere, in terms of. Create even at the level of creating jobs for them to have in the civil service and elsewhere where they get to lecture people about how to think. Yeah. So there is, a, there is a class component to their politics, but not of the
1: kind that we would be oh, supportive of. Definitely. I mean, one of the, um, Nick Buzzfein wrote an article about uh, what's going on in the civil service and the extent to which the civil service has been ideologically, ideologically captured. One of the things he says is that it's a really easy way to get yourself up the greasy pole yeah. is to, you know, <laughs> set up a diversity workshop. And show that you're on this side, and, and that you're, you know, it's a really easy way to do it. But yeah, I mean, you realise what you've just suggested there, you know, that that class is pro- class and money is probably the most important way in which people are uh, privileged. Um, that, according to Robin DiAngelo in White Fragility, she says she says that's a form of racism. Yeah, what you've just of course. done, yeah. So you know, but that's that's go. part of the trick, you know. <laughs> yeah. um, of course, it's the most important thing, you know, because there's something tangible. We're not talking about abstracts here. the, the tangible reality of being poor. Which is something that so many of these activists just simply do not comprehend. Yeah, and that's why I, I write about it in the book because they d- and I get it. You don't, you can't understand unless you've lived in poverty. You don't know what it's like. I mean, so many of these people they're independently wealthy anyway, so they they, they don't have to work. You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I've never been in that position, and, and most most people aren't. Yeah, I think ultimately we have to restore that. Can we can we get back to the point where we understand? And maybe it's about maybe it's about convincing people on the left then more than anything. And I think you're absolutely right. The diversity industry is so lucrative. I mean, what was it that Robin D'Angelo was getting paid to oh, go into corp- corporations? Something like 12 grand an hour or so. yeah. something really stupid to go in and tell the employees to try to be less white. Yeah. That was her takeaway message at Coca-Cola. Yeah. And someone, <laughs> someone took a photo of him and, and tweeted it. It's hilarious, but she means it. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of ways in which people's self-interest is probably at play here, but then I don't like to speculate about people's private thoughts, so I don't know the motives necessarily. But yeah, I'm sure. Even if that's not the motive, it does have the effect of perpetuating their control and power. Yeah, I, w- I
2: was on BBC TV with Robin De once, and she <laughs> constantly referred to me as a white man. And I, I remember saying to her, <laughs> her afterwards, "Oh, yeah." And I remember <laughs> saying to her afterwards, "Would you say that of a black man? Would you mm. say that's what you are? You're a black man?" And surely there's more to people <laughs> than their skin colour. Very old-fashioned approach that I have. Okay, I have two more questions for you, Andrew. The first is on censorship. Okay. And um, I really agree with something you said earlier about are we left wing? Are we right wing? One of the problems with that question is that we don't think it's a bad thing to be right wing. Yeah. Knock yourself out. That's fine. I have lots of friends who are right wing. Yeah. I've I more right
1: wing friends now yeah, than I, of course. I used to. I, I don't know the, any.
2: That's the way of the world <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. And I have great discussions with them, and they're often more open and frank than you can have with some people on the left. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's the way things are going. There's one line in the book which really struck me, and I wanted to ask you about, which you talk about the online harms bill, which is a pretty terrifying uh, proposed form of censorship from the conservative government. Um, and You talk about the legal but harmful... Uh, idea, yes. which is a really scary idea. And and you have this line where you say, this is this comes from the SJ, SJW playbook. Absolutely, This notion that yes, yeah, you're perfectly at liberty in the legal sense to say this thing, but it's really harmful. It's going to erase me. It's yeah. going to damage me. So you absolutely should not say it. And if you do, there will be consequences. So that's a useful way to understand, I think, that lots of people on the right are actually pretty censorious too. Uh, but I wanted to ask you about the censorship question more broadly, which is that um, cancel culture is still a pretty grave problem, isn't yeah. it? And we've recently had the in, uh, example of Jerry Sadovitz, a uh, brilliant, hilarious, insane comedian. Insane is right. Um, who <laughs> is uh, an institution in yeah. many ways in in, com- in British comedy, who was ousted from the Edinburgh Fringe. And I don't think lots of people have calculated just how serious a moment this is yeah, yeah, in terms huge. of our culture and cancel culture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it first, I mean, there's a couple of things there to, to address. I mean, the first thing, what you say about the online harms bill, I also talk mm. about the protest bill, the police and sentencing yeah. crimes bill, uh, because we often forget, and when we talk about how this is about left versus right, it's wrong. I mean, that's just wrong, plain wrong. If you, if you, if you try and understand the culture war in terms of left and right, you're going to get it wrong because most of this stuff has been presided over by the Tories. Yeah and they have actually been responsible for a lot of this stuff and they use the lexicon of social justice themselves so they're part of the problem this isn't it, it may be that the labor party is is more infected by this stuff but the tories are not immune to it by any means and of course the civil service is completely captured and that's the machinery of government so that's it's a very good example of the way in which we mustn't understand this as left versus right uh, and as you say, right-wing people can be just as censorious as anyone else. You know, we know that just from glancing through history. We, we know that this is the case. So, so the Sadowitz thing is really interesting because in terms of the comedy industry, you know, when Roy Chubby Brown was, had his show cancelled at Sheffield Council and they said it, he didn't reflect the values of Sheffield, whatever that means. <laughs> I didn't know Sheffield had values particularly. Um, and it's very easy for comics. Comics generally don't like Roy Chubby Brown yeah. and they see him as a reactionary. So it's easy for them to ignore that or, or, or say, or even cheer it on. Sadowitz is is beloved by many comedians. I mean, he says he's far more offensive than Roy Chubby Brown, by the way. Uh, He's the most extreme comic I've ever seen. People don't understand the act, though. I mean, the the act is an explosion of hate on stage. If there is anything, any minority group, he'll go after them. Uh, He hates everyone and everything, including himself. He says (laughs) some of the most anti Semitic things I've ever heard. And of course, he's Jewish. It doesn't matter to him. It, it, it's it's just this, and, and what's brilliant about his act is he's doing these magic tricks, sleight of hand, card tricks, while he's spitting this bile, and that's in of itself the juxtaposition is hilarious. <laughs> but it's unlike any other act, mm. and he's brilliant at what he does. And for the first time, he's had to break character. He put a statement out about what happened, and he said, "Look, I put more thought into this than the Pleasants, which is the venue that cancelled him, realize." And and it was a bit of a, it was a bit sad because yeah, he yes. never breaks character. Mm. You know, he screams racial epithets. He gets his penis out and waves it at the audience. He's, he's, he's rebarbative and vile and vicious and psychopathic. I mean, one of his shows was called Jerry Sadowitz's Comedian Psychopath. You know, you get what you pay for. Like he, it's, it's, it's not as though he's hoodwinked anyone into thinking he's actually a Pam air's tribute act, right? <laughs> it is vicious and ugly and hilarious. You laugh in spite of yourself. It's, it's, it's a great act. Um, but, but this will test a lot of comedians. You know, I noticed a lot, there's been a lot of silence yeah. On this, because mm-hmm. mostly because they don't want to prove people like me right. Mm. You know, I've been warning about this sort of stuff for ages. I've specifically said that I think Sadowitz is like this is likely to happen to Sadowitz, but people just don't want to acknowledge that this is a problem. They think cancel culture has been invented by the very people who are opposing cancel culture, but of course, it is a real thing. Um, and you know, Sadowitz lost well, he, only, he was only doing two nights at the end of a fringe, so you know, half of his run was cancelled, right? One of the <laughs> yeah. nights, but it was a sold out night in a massive venue, so mm. that actually is uh, significant. But it's more the principle of the thing. Even, you know, even if that wasn't the case, even if he was just playing a 10-seater whatever, some dive, it's the principle that the Pleasance is saying we are going to say that that a comedian's work should be subject to these yeah. values that they've decided on. It's not the place of promoters and venues to uh, decide on what comedians say. It's really, really a problem. Some mainstream comics have supported Sadowitz and you can sense this sort of discomfort that's going on in the, in the comedy industry. But, um, you know, whenever this sort of stuff happens, people don't come, I don't get it with comics. Why would you not be slightly protective over your industry mm. and over artistic freedom? Mm. Why wouldn't that concern you? But they're not coming out in sufficient force. And this is just the beginning. This will keep happening. You know, I, it's, it's all very well for Sadowitz insofar as now he's playing the Hammersmith Apollo. Yeah, This has generated, generated a lot of publicity for him and good. That's good. That's a good thing. But there's going to come a point where maybe this doesn't, maybe cancellations become the norm. The industry is well behind the woke movement. They've explicitly said it. I've written before about Nika Burns at the 2018 Edinburgh Festival Fringe. She's the head of the comedy awards, one of the key figures of the comedy industry, opened the festival with a speech talking about how she was looking forward to comedy in its new woke iteration, the new woke world she described it as. Using that word woke again, right? Which is apparently a right-wing slur, but no one said that she was using a right-wing slur. And I remember talking to producers who were in that room, you know, it was all the industry people. And some people were really shocked by this. But it was like an edict from on high. Yeah. And what she was saying was, if you're a young up-and-coming comedian, you better convey the woke message. Otherwise, you're not going to be eligible for awards. You're not going to get booked. You're not going to get on TV. And believe it or not, people heeded that because they were interested in, you know, their commercial viability. So look, the industry is captured. This might be a really interesting point where people might be forced. To express solidarity with Sadowitz, mm. and thereby there might be some tremors within the industry. I, have for a few years now, thought the industry's kind of lost anyway, because there's kind of a uh, collaboration between the promoters, uh, the people who award the prizes and the plaudits, the critics especially, and lots and lots of comedians who are sort of uh, policing each other and enforcing certain ideas. Now, not in terms of censorship, let's be clear about that. No one's saying, uh, this person's going to go to prison for saying this, or you can't say that on stage. Uh, but they are generating a climate within which people know, comedians know they better self-censor. Mm. And that's fine if you're quite a, a tepid comedian whose work isn't naturally mm-hmm. controversial. My my work as a comedian isn't naturally controversial, so I'd be fine within this. But um, I think comedians whose instinct is to be subversive and to, to really put, you know, the kind of Andy Kaufman, Joan yeah. Rivers, Patrice O'Neill's of the world, yeah. those people could never thrive in the current UK comedy industry. It, it couldn't happen. So who knows? what talents are being curtailed, who knows what we're missing because of the capture of the industry. And I'd like to, you know, I would, I think comedians probably have to now circumvent the industry, go online, do that sort of thing. Cause it's kind of over. Um, but you know, you know, but maybe the Sadowitz thing will be a turning point. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's what remains to be seen and it has the
2: potential to be a turning point. Yeah. And, um, you're right. You know, someone like Joan Rivers, I mean, she got in trouble towards the end of her life for her absolutely hilarious joke about Heidi Klum and the Holocaust, which people will be able to find online. Yeah. But, you know, you you can really trace it over time where comedians who were subversive were more acceptable in the 60s and 70s, but yeah. then it gets slightly shut down and they become more susceptible to cancellation as time goes on. And I think in relation to Jerry Sad- Sadowitz, the way I see it is that a, a Britain that doesn't have room for Jerry Sadowitz is just a much sadder country. Well, it's course. a country that has said no to subversion, no to that very anarchic approach to comedy and culture and issues, and is just a smaller country as a consequence.
1: But it also points to a, a another real problem at the heart of the social justice movement, which is this incredible literal mindedness. Yeah, so when they see Sadowitz on stage shouting the n word or whatever, they think that's a racist shouting the n word. They don't yeah. think this is a theatrical persona. Doing something that might be a little more interesting than just uh, being racist, yeah. Um, and of course, that's what it is. So, th- the way in which they don't see joke, they see jokes as just a literal expression of someone's opinion, and that means <laughs> yeah. you, that means you can't understand a joke. You don't know what comedy <laughs> is, and when you have people who are not comedy literate running the comedy industry, yeah, that's insane. And that is what where we're at. That is where we're at at the moment. So, the, and that literal mindedness extends to all sorts of things. I've got a chapter in the book about. The arts, because I think these ideologues are fundamentally ill-equipped to understand what art is. They see every artistic endeavor as a, an expression of the will to power, as as a kind of either a novel is uh, upholding privilege or challenging power structures. Yeah, they don't, they can't see it in any other way. I mean, this dates back to again the sixties and to you know the, the the works by you know theorists who like to deconstruct the text to tease out the prejudices of the author so you'd have things like DH Lawrence is sexist uh Shakespeare is racist and homophobic and th- those kind of things which of course ignores the artistry ignores the poeticism it means there is no there's no soul to that kind of analysis mm. you're not understanding uh, what you're looking at you 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 can't you can't assess it you're you're simply not qualified and the danger is that the people who are ostensibly the most qualified the people with the PhDs in literature are actually the least qualified to understand literature in that context so it's really, when you reduce everything to, to power games and power struggles, the world is de- denuded of much of its beauty. Uh, and I think it's really horrible. I mean, similarly with some of the responses to the Salman Rushdie attack, you know, mm. you saw Jolly and Maugham tweeting about how he was complaining about a Guardian opinion piece, which thankfully supported Rushdie's right to free speech. And Morm was saying, but free speech is, is a complicated thing. It's about what, how are you using your platform? What, whose power are you upholding? Right. I doubt he's ever read a Salman Rushdie book, but if if you read the Satanic Verses, which is a brilliant piece of work, and all you can think of is, okay, <laughs> yeah. which minority groups are being upheld here? Yeah. Which power structures are being challenged here? If that's all you can see, you're not really reading the book. Mm. That's what I'd say. And to ask that question after
2: someone has just been stabbed in the neck oh, well, is just, it's just crass, so unbelievably despicable. It brings to mind when, you know, a few days after the Charlie Hebdo massacre in 2015, Navarra Media published a piece in which they said, "Well, most of the cartoonists and journalists of that publication are white middle-class males, and therefore they have a certain amount of privilege in comparison to the Muslim population of France." You think what kind of privilege entails someone coming into your office and shooting you in the head? Yes, and so there that's is this—that's <laughs> that, not privilege. However, Unbelievably repugnant behavior, just really repugnant. And I think uh, all those free speech questions and the free speech wars are, are absolutely—it's it's so essential that we continue fighting them. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Andrew. My final question for you is on your use of the phrase uh, "counter enlightenment," yeah. which is in the book, which I really like. Um, firstly, because it implies that the Enlightenment was a good thing, yeah. which it was. Yeah. Uh, there it are was. lots of pe- <laughs> there are lots of people out there who think it wasn't, uh, and I find them incredibly frustrating. I think it was an, uh, arguably the most important moment in human history in terms of propelling us forward into an era of scientific inquiry yes. rationalism freedom of thought freedom of conscience and eventually at some stage freedom of speech so how do we counter the counter enlightenment i think one of the one of the things i like about your book is that and you touched on this earlier on in the conversation is that the answer is actually heresy the answer is actually you know to paraphrase orwell if there is hope it lies with the heretics yeah. because it is a question of having that courage isn't it and that bravery and saying I don't believe that trans women are women. I don't believe that uh, critical race theory is anti-racism. I don't believe that someone should be banned just because they have offended someone. Isn't it just about saying those things more and more in
1: the public sphere so we chip away at the counter-enlightenment? Absolutely. It's about, uh, well, you know, it's the the motto of the Enlightenment that Kant appropriated from Horace, dare to know. Mm. And uh, that's what the Enlightenment's all about. I'm unashamedly Think the enlightenment was a good thing I know that it can be caricatured as this idea that it dragged us out of the mud and you know, but it did yeah you know I mean <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that everyone who existed before the enlightenment was just this sort of mindless drone that, of course not but <laughs> but but you know the idea of the primacy of truth, the primacy of scientific inquiry, of rational thought of evidence led epistemology all of this stuff that we are in danger of losing I mean even you've got medical journals reputable medical journals saying that sex is a spectrum. Yeah. Even I know sex is not a spectrum <laughs> and I barely scrape my biology GCSE. <laughs> and yet here we have some of the finest minds in the world apparently on this subject and I know more than them. How depressing is that? <laughs> so, you know, we have to get back to those fundamental values. Mm. What was it the journal of chemistry doing a thing about how we need to take into account whether people are going to be offended by what we write first and foremost. I don't know how you'd be offended by Bunsen burner or whatever. I don't know what's going on there, but with this weird stuff about bringing in in, in indigenous ways of knowing into science lessons, you know, talking about these sort of pagan gods uh, alongside, you know, whatever, Copernicus, I don't know. Like it doesn't, I suppose it's because of this fear of uh, cultural relativism and and, and this idea that we all ways of knowing are equally valid. That's the the, the basis. And And you know, that's why we get this concept which I come back to in the book of lived experience. Mm. Ultimately, this notion of lived experience that because I feel something is true, therefore it is true. It is my way of knowing. And the, the phrase way of knowing, ways of knowing is used in academic circles a lot now that there are different ways of knowing. Uh, the idea being that all academic inquiry and that the Enlightenment was just a, how is it described? A conspiracy of dead white men in periwigs. And that all the, all the major movers Oh, like Hume and all these people in the Enlightenment, all they were doing was trying to perpetuate straight white male privilege. Yeah. <laughs> that's all they were trying to do. But they didn't think in those terms of group identity. This is so anachronistic and, and, and myopic. Um, so I think going back to these values of the Enlightenment is is what we need to do. The phrase "the counter Enlightenment" is a good way to describe this movement. Yeah. I think uh, I didn't invent the term, of course, but I think that's a great way that we can uh, we can we can do it. But absolutely, uh, whether we're going to win or not. <laughs> I don't know. It feels too deeply embedded now in all of these, in all of these things. And well, you know, like even me challenging the, the medical journals, the top medical journal, people are going to laugh at that and say, well, who are you? You don't know anything. And you're right. I don't, but you know, we can give it a shot. But give, well, <laughs> what's the alternative? <laughs> Complete ignorance in a future where everyone's individual truth mm. is, is, is validated. Well, that's never going to work anyway because everyone's got different perspectives of the world. And I don't think they've thought it through really. I don't know. But, um, I hope that if we keep pushing, uh, ultimately reason will prevail and the world will sober up. Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe, and in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.
0: Tax Day is coming. Oh, no.